One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Must have been about three months ago when one of the senior managers here said, could we do something on the Paris climate change talks? And I have to say my heart sank rather because climate change is a topic we do a lot and it is quite a familiar topic and it is quite difficult to find new things to say about it. But then I was delighted when discussing this with Elizabeth Davis, producer, that she'd just been reading a book by a gentleman called Mackenzie Funk. Uh, Yes, uh, Mackenzie wrote this book called Windfall, uh, which I came across, which was about countries and companies looking for opportunities in climate change. Uh, And that sort of sparked a discussion about, yeah, how new technologies were were coming to the fore and and how companies and countries were looking to get into making money from the entire thing. And then we ended up in Iceland... Yes. Uh, sort of with, with, the, with the president and uh, discussing various things in Iceland, all to do with the Arctic uh, Circle and so on. And it turned out that... Uh, well, they were seeing climate change as an opportunity as well. They were thinking about more, more fish coming to their shores. They were going to be a global shipping hub uh, for new routes opening up across the Arctic. Uh, so they definitely saw climate change as an opportunity for them. Exactly. So it's all very interesting and seemed to be a bit of a new take on the whole issue of uh, climate change and what's happening in Paris and so on. And then the more reading we did, we basically understood that adaptation is a key word and that the previous efforts have been all about how to try and prevent climate change. Increasingly, people are thinking, well, you know, we haven't really prevented it, so we'll have to adapt. And so there's a lot more discussion now about what that means. And that is really the subject of this week's podcast. You're listening to NewsHour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones on the World Service of the BBC. And this week, it's not a programme about carbon emissions. It's not a programme about the causes of global warming. It is a programme about the increasingly widespread agreement about how much warming there has been and how we can adapt to future global warming. The Paris meeting on climate change is trying to limit the rise to two degrees but an increasing number of scientists say it will be more than that and that the growing challenge is to accept that and then work out what to do about it. It's called adaptation. How do we adapt? And when we adapt, who wins and who loses? Pretty much everyone now agrees that adaptation matters. The disputes are about how to do it, and we're going to discuss that. And to do so, I'm joined by Heather McRae, who is Director of the Vulnerability and Adaptation Programme at the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C., although she's currently in Paris for the talks in Paris. We've got Dr. Salim Ulhaq sitting next to her in Paris. He's also there. Uh, But he is the Director at the International Centre for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. Here in London, I have Professor Mark Maslin, Professor of Climatology at University College London, and the author, amongst other books, of uh, Climate Change, A Very Short Introduction, which I'm told has sold very lots. And uh, we also will have Mackenzie Funk. He's going to join us from Seattle. And he is a prize-winning journalist and the author of a book called Windfall, which has looked at some of the companies and some of the people who are wondering how they can profit from global warming, how they can make some money out of it, the market end of adaptation. So let's get underway. And to do that... We have an interview with the eminent scientist James Lovelock, originator of Gaia Theory, which sees the Earth as a complex, self-regulating system 
and I asked for his views on the concept of adaptation. I, I think it's a good one, and it's one that's been missed out a lot. The one nation in Europe which is the lead nation in this, this field, of course, is the Netherlands. I mean, they're below sea level to start with, and with sea levels rising a foot or so at the end of the century, they've got real problems. And they've done wonders, I think, and I think we should follow their example. They put a good bit of their national income into extending, not losing, the amount of land they have around the Netherlands. What other technologies do you think might become more important? Better housing, obviously, but perhaps the most important one of all is making sure there are adequate supplies of food. You see, we probably do not, as a, an area, Europe, produce much more food than we, we eat, only a little bit. population is still growing. Are we going to be able to feed ourselves in uh, 35 years' time? That's what worries me more. We, we get the food, of course, from the rest of the world, but will their climate be suitable for growing? India, for example runs an awful lot of its agriculture by drawing water from aquifers. They're not going to last that long. And the same is true of other parts. Much of America is drawing its water from underground aquifers. And the tendency is for those regions to go drought-like. And we may be up against a pretty hefty food shortage. So we better start adapting for that kind of chaos. You're famous for looking at the very broad picture and for seeing the Earth as having the capacity to cope with change, even if it is at the expense of humans. When you talk about humans adapting, do you think actually they have the power and capacity to cope with the scale of the forces that uh, are in play now? Indeed, I think we are, we are a really tough species, probably the toughest on the planet, nearly, as well as a very valuable one. The thing that people seem to forget is that our bad times have coincided with cold periods, not hot periods. About 100,000 years ago, somewhere near that, uh, there was a nasty volcanic eruption from a mountain called Toba, somewhere in the, uh, in the Indonesia. And at that time, the number of humans was reduced to a few thousand. So great was the devastation caused by that eruption. But we've, we've made our way through. I mean, we, we all come from that group of survivors of that period. Well, so you've got a basic optimism that humans will prove to be capable of, of adapting. Oh, I, I do indeed. What about, though, the idea that maybe uh, when you see global warming and cl human-caused climate change, the, the, the Earth might be better off without humans? Oh, no, no. I think there are two species that have appeared on Earth that are truly valuable. The first were the photosynthesizers that took the sunlight, harvested it, and produced food and oxygen. And that has enabled the rest of life to continue and evolve. Without them, we wouldn't be here talking about it. Now, we're the second, amazingly. We have learnt to use the energy of the sun to harvest and store information. And we're participating in that now, just now. No other species before ever got vaguely near that and it's that kind of information that enables us once we've learned to be a bit cleverer than we are to handle the problems of the future uh, very good well we've got our panel here in london just listening to you and discussing the possibilities of adaptation what would your one message be to our panel as they contemplate these matters 
Oh, goodness. The first message would be, don't rely too much on mathematical models. They're great fun, uh, but if you fall in love with them, you'll get the wrong, wrong answers. Here we are, James Lovelock, and I don't know how many of you are in love with mathematical models, but anyway, you, you've been warned. Uh, so that's uh, James Lovelock, and he's set up there some of the issues that we'll try to cope with over the rest of the hour. So let's just go to the panel, and first of all, can I ask for your basic view on what's happened in terms of global warming and what is going to happen. And again, we're not going into the causes of it, any of that. It's just what's happened on global warming. So why don't I start with you, uh, Heather McRae, in Paris. Uh, how do you see the numbers? At the moment, the emissions trajectories are, are set to take us quite a ways beyond two degrees. Uh, but there's there's signs of, of uh, possibility and optimism now. The, the talks that are underway right now have included... Uh, commitments on climate emissions reductions from um, uh, almost 150 countries. And while those aren't yet on track to keep us to two degrees, they are on track to take care of a portion of the emissions reductions needed to get us there. Okay. Uh, Salim Ulhaq, what's your view on the numbers of of, uh, how many degrees? We are locked into a one degree uh, temperature rise, which we will have to deal with uh, whether we like it or not. How much higher that goes uh, remains to be seen, and Paris hopefully will be an outcome that takes us in the right direction away from the business as usual, which currently takes us to well over three degrees, which is bad news for everybody, including both the rich and the poor countries. Uh, The poorest countries, the most vulnerable countries, are appealing for the target to be actually reduced from two degrees to one and a half degrees, which would then make it safe for many of the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet and species and ecosystems as well. It's a very, very tough ask. It's not going to be easy, but we believe it can be done if everybody pulls in the right direction together. Okay, so you've both got hopes in Paris, but Professor Mark Maslin in uh, in London, um, setting hope aside, if, if I can put it like that, just in terms of what you actually think your forecast is, what would you think of the numbers? I don't think we can set hope aside because I think what is the most important thing about the future is it isn't written yet. Mm. So when people say we can't make the two degrees uh, target, that's because they haven't envisaged a future where we can actually change the global system to actually do that. So I think the question is... What do we need to do to actually provide that hope, to provide that vision, to actually get to those limits? Yeah, well, that, that, that's a topic which we've discussed for the last, I don't know, 15 years on the World Service and many other places too. Uh, what we're trying to get at here, though, is you know, what is likely to happen uh, and, and how the world is going to cope with it. And I know that you're all invested in this debate and you all have hopes of what can happen, but we're just trying to get down to what is going to happen. Let me, let me just uh, play a tape from the UN. This is their uh, effort to explain what might happen. It, it was, they commissioned a series of weather reports from across the world asking meteorologists to predict what their country's weather will be like, what they think it'll be like in 2050. Hello, this is Nigeria in 2050 and time again for the weather forecast. Rainstorms resulting to flooding. In South Africa, you'll see there'll be places that will be severely impacted, as we'll be seeing uh, severities of strong winds coming in. 
dry and hot air coming from the Karahari Desert has continued advancing into Zambia with the temperatures in the range of 48 degrees Celsius. This heat wave... The cyclone tropical très intense Gérald Abe a atterri à Madagascar Si Typhoon Ruby sa lupa sa huling update ng pag-asa na sa 250 kilometers per hour. Hurricane Kyle is tracking way offshore, but still, Miami South Beach is underwater. Will this deadly Chicago heat wave ever end following a brutal summer with record temperatures? And the winner is Anchorage, Alaska. The 2060 Summer Games are set. More on why it's now the perfect host city. So there you go, the summer games in uh, in Alaska. How about that? So uh, Nigeria, South Africa, Zambia, Madagascar, the Philippines, and the US, and obviously a lot of countries. We we chose that in Africa because many people think Africa will take the brunt of this. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Mark Madison, can you just help us with one point? What is it? A, why is it that there will be? It is widely predicted there will be more extreme weather events. Why does global warming lead to that? The key thing is when you're actually putting more energy into the atmosphere, so we're warming it up, what happens is climate speeds up. And so you have to dissipate that energy. And all climate is, is trying to remove the heat from the tropics to the poles. So if you heat up the planet, of course, you're moving more energy from the tropics to the poles. And what happens is then you build up more energy and more water vapour in the atmosphere, which leads to more extreme events. Right. So that explains that. And now let's just ask you, you know, not for your weather forecast of 2050, but for your, your general picture of you, you've given us some numbers of the sort of region you think the, 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 the global warming, what, what sort of degree increase there will be. So Heather McRae, why don't you start us off? When you look ahead 20, 30, 40 years, how bad will it get? There are a lot of things we worry about in in your clips there. We heard about strong winds and dry, hot air and um, places where agriculture um, becomes really very challenging and and where current livelihoods rely on climate-sensitive resources. Uh, These livelihoods are are what is at risk and um, really make potentially significant changes for large numbers of people. So, so Professor Maslin, can I ask you for some specifics on this? I mean, if if, if we're saying, I mean, you can pick whichever number you're comfortable with, two, two and a half, three, three and a half. What can we expect if if that's how it turns out? And, and, and I mean, are we talking floods, famine? What is likely? So if I can illustrate this just by say with one example, because there are so many, mm. a key thing is that we talk about two, three or four degrees. But the thing is, climate doesn't work like that. It works like a threshold. So one of the things that we're incredibly worried about is farming in the tropics. Because the key thing is that people can happily work outside, small farmers producing enough food for themselves and selling a bit on for the urban areas. But the problem is, if you increase the temperatures and humidity slightly, you get to a point where it is impossible for people to physically work outside. And that is a threshold. So it doesn't matter if it's two, three or four. It's when you cross that threshold. That means those small farmers can't produce the food that they're producing now. They can't feed themselves and they can't produce the surplus that's actually going to okay. um, support the urban area. Yeah, fine. But where, where do you see that threshold in that particular example? It depends on where in the world. So it, some places it will happen at two degrees and some places at three. The key thing is, of course, that it's not linear. So, of course, as you go past two degrees, the number of areas and the number of people affected will grow and grow exponentially. 
Salimul Haq, how do you see it in, in Bangladesh? I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to ask you to be specific so people can envisage what this debate is actually about, what's at stake. But on the best information and knowledge you have, what would you be expecting in Bangladesh at, let's say, two, three and four degrees? I'll give you one metric by which we estimate uh, things will be affected in Bangladesh, which is the coastal area. So to, just to give you an idea about the country, it's... Uh, uh, 150 million people living in less than 150,000 square kilometers, meaning that the average density of population is over a thousand people per square kilometer, which is the density of a city by UN definition. It's an amazing number. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and it's a poor country, and it's a low-lying delta of through two of the major rivers of the world, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, which regularly flood and is uh, susceptible to regular typhoons and hurricanes, and in the low-lying coastal areas, we have increased salinity due to sea level rise and a combination of other factors as well happening as we speak. And as a result, our best estimate is that inevitably and unavoidably over the next 20 years, because nothing we do in Paris is going to change the trajectory in the next 20 years, what we do in Paris is going to help the future, particularly our children and grandchildren, but not those of us who are adults now. Our future is already locked in. And in the case of Bangladesh, we are looking at approximately 10 million plus people who will no longer be able to continue the livelihoods they had in the coastal areas. The farming and fishing activities which people have there will no longer be viable and they're going to have to move. They will, if, they, if current patterns prevail, they'll move to Dhaka City and Dhaka City simply can't take another 10 million. It's already the fastest growing mega city in the world with 15 million people. Uh, so we need to have them go to other urban centers and develop the infrastructure for them to go there. And most importantly, we have to educate their children so the children don't have to end up being farmers and fishers but can get jobs in the cities and then take their families. So migration being planned and facilitated is actually an adaptation strategy in the case of Bangladesh. It's interesting, you're all talking about migration, for enforced human movement. Well, let's, let's just uh, consider uh, a bit of, from Mackenzie Funk, who's just joined us from Seattle, a little bit about uh, how people are adapting already and thinking about adapting. Because one of the little appreciated facts about all this, this global warming, is that some countries and some companies are looking to benefit from it. Uh, in Iceland, there is talk of building a deep sea port, for example, to handle all the shipping that will come through the Arctic. Uh, Greenland is getting access to minerals previously under snow and ice. And there are companies building water defences, snow machines for ski resorts, all sorts of people trying to cash in on global warming. And Mackenzie Funk, you've written a book on this. It's actually a fascinating book. Can you give us some more examples? Even if we've been talking about farming, we've I've seen hedge funds that have gone into East Africa to buy up farmland close to the Nile, where they think that even as temperatures rise, there's a lot of open land, at least according to them, and there's some water. Even as water becomes more scarce, they'll have access to it through the Nile. And so they'll buy massive tracts of land to grow food on the belief that food will become more expensive in a warmer world. Uh, you can see that also in parts of Asia. Yeah, so when you looked at it in the whole, did you think it was companies, uh, you know, big global corporations, or locals, if I can put it, small businesses, I don't know, farmers, who, who would benefit most? I would certainly say it was the big corporations. As as Professor said earlier, it's those who have the money who can adapt best. 
And adaptation doesn't mean just protecting your own patch. In the case of these entrepreneurs I looked at, a lot of them said, well, I'm going to adapt by making money off of this this new thing in the market, climate change. And so they were out there looking for any upside to the, the overall downside of climate change. And that, as you mentioned, includes minerals, even people buying up water rights, the actual physical rights to water in Australia and the American West on the belief that water would become more expensive, and it has. People are doing that, are they? We've already, funds are, yes. we've already seen this. We've had um, skews in uh, f- prices of food. So in 2008, after the uh, financial crash, everybody moved into food and it meant that food prices jumped by 60%. We had the same in 2011, 2012, when the markets moved into food. And so the problem is that this is dysfunctional because when you're trying to adapt and you're trying to actually protect people from climate change, you've then got speculators speculating on food prices, pushing up food prices for those who are the most vulnerable. But, but Mackenzie Funk, I mean, I, I, we, uh, we had the programme up in Iceland recently, and I was fairly amazed to hear all this, the Icelandic president saying, look, we really think, you know, and he's, I'm aware this is a global problem, but I really think from Iceland's point of view, we will come out ahead of this. And in Greenland, even people talking about the mineral revenues being so high, they might be able to get their independence from Denmark. So th- th- there are countries that really think that they can get, they can gain out of this, right? Yeah, I spent some time with the Greenlandic politicians as they went around talking about what they called self-governance, which is a half step to independence from Denmark. And it's, it's true that, that they believe that though there are obviously very bad things happening to Greenland and its traditional hunters, because of climate change, they think that the ice is going to the pullback is going to help them, not just through shipping, which allows access to to ports and to some of the oil deposits off the Greenlandic coast, but to some of the mines. I visited a zinc mine that had been closed since the 70s. They thought they got all the good stuff, and a geologist was walking around looking at it again. And I think 2006 or 2007, as zinc prices were high, and he was going on a stroll, and he came around the corner, and there he found a deposit as big as the original one underneath the foot of a glacier that had pulled back. You know, it's, it's one anecdote, but, of course, they, they reopened the mine, and based on longer shipping times, they said, well, this, this will happen. And I suppose the, the question is, the uh, 57,000 or so people of Greenland will have their independence, and, of course, the say the Marshall Islands, which has a, about an equal population, will have to leave their country entirely, so... Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. No, I mean, no one is suggesting that this is a benefit everywhere, but it is just quite striking that in some places there are some people who are looking to, you know, and whole nations looking to benefit. So why can't yeah. we use that? I mean, this is a fantastic... Uh, Professor Maslin again. Sorry, this is a, a wonderful example of how you can actually use the system to drive particular agendas. So at the moment we have about... $1 trillion of direct subsidies on fossil fuels. Now, if you up that to include all the damage, that can be up to about $3 trillion per year. Okay, So that's over the GDP of the United Kingdom. If we are able to move those subsidies to into renewables and to perhaps electric storage, suddenly all those hedge funds, all those big businesses would move their business because they can see where the angle is. So what we can do is if you want to, and this is the key, if we want to, we can use industry, we can use all those wonderful business leaders to actually drive a new future by changing the way we tax, we subsidise things to ensure that we have a cleaner and safer world. Mackenzie Funk. Those hedge funds I talked to, that's exactly right. They were completely agnostic about 
really whether they should stop climate change or just make money off it. Their goal was very simple, and it was to make money. And ones that were focused on climate investing, yes, they would have some some investments in adaptation, and yes, they would have some mitigation, and they didn't see it, a difference between one or the other. They were just following the market, and the market, unfortunately, was following climate change, which was getting worse. And so that's where they were putting a lot of their money. But as, as Professor Maslin says, change the game, and they will try to make money where the money is. Okay, thank you, uh, all four of you. We'll be back in a moment. Uh, Mackenzie Funk, Professor Maslin, Salim ul Haq, and uh, Heather McRae. We're just about to take a short break. In the second half of the programme, we will be considering just how the developing and developed world will adapt and how it will be different in those two parts of Earth. And just to remind you, if you like this week's programme, do let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at BBC NH Extra. You can send us an email, BBC News Hour Extra. That's all one word, BBC News Hour Extra at gmail.com. But perhaps most usefully, I can advise you that should you ever miss an edition of the programme, there is a podcast, and uh, just put BBC News Hour Extra into your podcast provider or your search engine or whatever, and you'll find all the links you need to download it to whatever device you have, and you'll never miss another edition of BBC News Hour Extra. We're beginning this half of the programme with the sci-fi writer Paolo Bacigalupi. And I say sci-fi, but actually there's a new genre, you, you, you've probably all heard about it, called cli-fi, that's new to me, climate change sort of focused sci-fi. So what world does he see coming? Uh, the, here's an extract. His latest book is called The Water Knife. The Colorado River, it wound like a serpent through the pale scapes of the desert. California hadn't put this stretch of river into a straw yet, but it would. All that evaporation. Couldn't let the sun steal that forever. But for now the river still flowed in the open, exposed to the sky. Even much reduced by droughts and diversions, the Colorado River awakened reverent hungers. No wonder Hindus worshipped rivers. In its prime, the Colorado River had run more than a thousand miles from the White Snow Rockies down through the Red Rock Canyons of Utah and on to the Blue Pacific, tumbling fast and without obstruction. And wherever it touched, life. These days, the river ran low and sluggish, stoppered behind huge dams, and Mexico never saw a drop of water hit its border, no matter how much it complained. So there we are, an extract from The Water Knife, and here is the author, Paolo Bacigalupi. The Water Knife is about sort of a global warming future where we failed to plan or adapt to what was coming at us. Uh, fundamentally, it's a story of a water war between Phoenix and Las Vegas. Uh, one city, Phoenix, uh, sort of decided to sort of pretend that global warming wasn't an issue, and Las Vegas sort of looked around in, very, in a very clear-eyed way, uh, decided that uh, it was coming and that they wanted to be the winners. Um, all of the science data says that in the future we're going to have less water. And so the story is really focusing on that question of what happens when water becomes less and less available and yet we've actually expected more and more from it. Right. So uh, you must have thought about that a lot. What does happen, in your view, when water starts running out? What changes? It destabilizes things. Uh, you know, the thing is, is, is water is one of those uh, resources that it's, it's ubiquitous and necessary and yet largely invisible. Um, we don't tend to think of our ho house as having value 
only because it has water coming out of the tap, but that's the truth. And so there are sections of Phoenix in this future where where the water has stopped flowing out of the taps, and so there's all of these houses that have become valueless overnight, essentially. Part of the story also focuses on refugees from Texas who have been already sort of blown out of their own state by a drought, and so they're trying to move to other places where water still exists. Um, and so that also creates destabilizing influences what I'm most interested in is sort of the cascade of consequences, that one problem becomes the next problem becomes the next problem in a domino effect. How far ahead have you set this? Uh, I never actually set, uh, use, a, use a specific date, but, uh, you know, a few decades in the future is kind of the idea. I wanted it to feel real enough and, and present enough that it would feel visceral to people. Um, one of the things that was interesting when, I, when the book came out, of course, is that the California drought has been happening. And so in some ways, the drought that I was imagining where all the reservoirs are too low to actually uh, store anything at all and where everybody's starting to scramble for water is already upon California. And so it almost felt like the future was coming at us faster than I could even write about it. Right, true, I guess. But what about the point that if you look at what happened in California or what's happening in California, you know, years go by and they're quite resilient, actually. I don't really have any doubt that human beings have an ability to adapt um, or to plan or to organize ourselves. The ability is there. The, the will uh, is always the question. And what's your mission here? To tell a good story or to raise awareness? If you're going to write fiction, your first duty is always to entertain. Um, but I think beyond that, I think that fiction can fulfill a lot of different uh, sort of outcomes. And and so it's not an either-or sort of scenario. I think it's possible to entertain, and I think it's also possible to give someone food for thought. Ideally, I think more than anything else, what I want to do is contextualize. I want to create a sort of a wild, frightening future that allows us then, when we're looking around in this moment and we're watching things happen, like the climate conference or like the fact that Lake Mead and Lake Powell here in the western United States are very, very low and only getting lower, that those things which would otherwise just be sort of placid data points suddenly become more real and visceral and, and important to people. You want to have that, create that context of, well, if this goes on, what does the world look like? If this goes on, where will we end up? You want people to start thinking about that more seriously. And that's uh, Paolo Bacigalupi there. Now, Heather McRae, are you a reader of uh, Cli-Fi? <laughs> no, I'm afraid I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, do you recognise what he's saying there as, you know, a possible future? Well, yes, indeed. I think um, what he's he's painted here is is quite possible. But what we have seen historically, I'm pleased to say, more often than you see water wars per se, you see people collaborating around water management. And I think in spite of the the hype around the potential to fight over water, there's a lot more evidence that people and countries and regions find ways to collaborate. Salim al do you recognize what you just heard there when you think about what's actually happening in Bangladesh? Because there are, yeah, it is a very vulnerable country and there are already pressures. Are you seeing that kind of local level cooperation rather than local-level conflict. Uh, indeed. In fact, the Ganges River, which flows through uh, India for well over a 1,000 kilometres and then comes into Bangladesh, uh, splits up. It goes Part of it goes through West Bengal in India and part of it goes through Bangladesh. And the Indian government some decades ago built a, a dam or a barrage upstream of us and started diverting water from the Ganges, uh, from our side of the Ganges to their side to flush out the port of Calcutta. Not very cooperative. And, not very cooperative, but then 
over a period of time, we started talking to them, and we have now arrived at a Ganges water treaty where we share the waters equitably. No, no, that's actually fascinating. You, you're confirming what Heather McRae said precisely, that there is a level of cooperation when really you wouldn't expect it. So, Pre- Professor Mazdin, I'm, I'm baffled by the degree of optimism that is being presented here that may be, may be ways of, of resolving some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the key thing is that we forget all the time that humans are deeply cooperative. Mm-hmm. We want to get on with our neighbours. We want to be able to work together. I think the problem comes when we move up the scales. I think both Heather and Salim has mentioned this, which is at the local level and even between individual nations, you can get treaties. What happens then is when you try to build it up onto a global scale to try and actually build these sort of cooperations, that's where we're starting to fail. That's where we don't have the right tools at the moment to try and actually build that wonderful human cooperation, but at the UN level. Right. Mackenzie Funk, do you agree with that? I do. I should say that book very much rings a bell because I, in 2009, spent some time on the Colorado River at the border with Mexico where they were. there was a canal, one of the first canals that had gone into the Colorado. It was lined with dirt, which meant that a lot of the water diverted would actually bubble under into the dirt underground and then pop up in Mexico. It was a very expensive project paid for by San Diego and the state of California to line that canal with concrete which meant, in effect, within 10 years, all the farmers in the Mexicali Valley, that entire region, would not be able to farm anymore. And so I I see both sides. This happened at a political level. It wasn't, of course, the locals who said, we need to take this water from Mexico. But this happened between the governments of Mexico and the United States. It was part of the treaty. And the treaty said, well, this is American water, so you can do what you need to on your side. In general, though, I, I, I agree with the sense that as much as I was dealing with people trying to make a buck off climate change. I didn't meet many bad people. You didn't meet many people who really wanted to get someone else. And I think it, a lot of it was organizational. A lot of it was the economic system we're in rather than, you know, malice. And let, let's move it on from water to other areas, because I, I think we heard earlier from Professor Maslin that, that there is a chance that this will entrench global inequality and that some countries and some societies will simply not be able to afford to make the investments they need to adapt and therefore, however much cooperation there is and goodwill there is, it is going to leave some people at the wrong end of this. I mean, Professor, you do basically take that view, do you? Well, according to Oxfam, there are 82 individuals that have the same wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion people in the world. Now, of course, if we took all that wealth away from those 82 people, we gave them a nice palace, but stripped their money away and gave it to the bottom 3.5 billion, then, of course, we could then develop them and allow adaptation. So... That's the problem. We have huge inequalities, which means that climate change is a real problem because there's so many vulnerable people. So you're saying that actually this issue could force deep social and economic issues onto the agenda? Well, I would really hope that seeing these changes into the future, you're going to get lots of agitation. You see that China... India, Bangladesh and countries like that are now at the Paris conference going, oh, hang on, guys, let's actually make this a little bit fairer. Let's have a look at who's actually developed, who's actually made the pollution, and let's actually try to see how we can do it in a more fair way. But let's put this to Salim Hack and Heather McRae in Paris, because one, one of the points I'm sure the developed countries would make is that there are actually funds now precisely for adaptation you know, in, in relation to climate change, and that Malawi's using it and others, there are international funds available to, to, to get some investment to try and adapt. Is, that's correct, isn't it, Salim Yes, it is. Indeed, there's been a significant amount of funding for adaptation 
promised and some of it delivered as well. The problem with the delivery is that it's not really very clear where it's going and how it's being done. And Heather McRae, is that funding anything near adequate, do you think? No, at this point, we're still just getting started, I think. And in fact, it's one of the toughest fights of these talks to uh, sort out how much is needed and how much can be delivered and um, really what counts as uh, adaptation finance. Could you give us some idea, either of you, of the scale of the funds we're talking about? Well, there's an estimate recently done by the United Nations Environment Programme that says the the need is likely to be between 200 and $500 billion per year. Uh, oh, my goodness. Time. <laughs> so the numbers are, are really staggering. Right. Um, but it's, it's one of the things that will not get completely worked out in these Paris talks of where will all of that money come from. Now, where will some of it come from? Where will about $100 billion of it come from? That, that can and needs to be worked out soon. Just so we're, we understand where we are on this, I mean, you've just given that enormous number per year. Uh, but in, in Paris, how much are they talking about for this, this, this sort of aspect of, well, of the problem? Let, let me jump in here yeah. um, and say where we are. So the, the rich countries have already pledged and promised $100 billion a year, starting from 2020, to cover all kinds of uh, climate change activities, which in uh, climate change jargon we call either mitigation or adaptation. A year? I mean, that's an enormous sum of money. Well, not, not that enormous compared to what they gave to the banking system when it collapsed. Well, that's okay. probably so, true, yeah. So it's all eye, in the, eye of the beholder and, and uh, relative speaking. Uh, climate change is a much bigger problem than the banking crisis. When I was in Bangladesh, I was struck, and it's been a few years since I was out reporting the book, but I was struck how little money was actually making it to far-flung places compared to the need. And by way of example... After Hurricane Sandy, there was a big call for a system of storm surge barriers and seawalls to protect New York City. Uh, back of the envelope computation on that price to protect Manhattan, protect Wall Street, would be about $10 billion. And at the time, that was more than the money, more money than all of the countries in the world had actually delivered to these adaptation funds. And yet it was, it was on the agenda, and New York is moving forward with protecting itself from another Sandy. I was again struck by this this split between those who will protect their own patch first and the rich world you can see adaptation projects moving forward. Give some more examples of what you're seeing. Desalination is another great example of a technology that, that has tremendous potential. It has some environmental downsides, but beyond those, desalination can bring water to where there is none. And yet the cost of such a plant means that you see them mostly going up in richer parts of the world. You see them on the eastern seaboard of China. You see them in all the big cities in Australia see them in Spain, you see them beginning if they can do the regulatory hurdles in California. And it's another one of these technologies that could work for, for the entire world if we could pay for it. But Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh is, I guess, very difficult to, to afford it. Uh, well, technology prices are going down very rapidly and hopefully over time they may well be available. We have also uh, access to a lot of indigenous technology and homegrown in the coastal area in Bangladesh, for example, People are harvesting rainwater on their rooftops and using that for drinking during the dry period when the other parts of the, the potential water system gets more salinized. So it's a combination of both low-tech and high-tech solutions that need to be explored all over the world. So can I ask you all to summarise? I'll ask you all for a comment on this question, just to summarise this, this part of our discussion. Is global warming going to entrench 
global inequality? That's my question to you. Why don't I start with you, Professor Maslin, and we'll just run through the panel and then we'll move on to something else. I think that climate change is a crisis of humanity which allows us to actually address the inequalities that have been set up in the world due to colonialism and many other things. And therefore, we need to actually address that. And I think Paris will actually come out at the end of next week. There will start to be a burgeoning international agreement which will then move the system forward and these inequalities will start to break down. He's determinately optimistic. Heather McRae, do you, do you, what do you think? I think we cannot solve the climate change challenge without addressing our inequalities. It has to happen. That's a slightly different uh, way of looking at it. Not, 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 it's a similar sentiment. And Salim Al-Haq? I think this is an opportunity for the whole world to get together and solve two of the biggest problems in the world, which is climate change that's coming and poverty in general. I mean, we have to make poverty history as well. Mackenzie Funk, can you perform the role of the sceptical journalist? (laughs) (laughs) I can say that that based on the the pure geography of the world that, yes, it so happens that the north is richer, the south is not, and that the south is going to get hit more. Not not just who can then adapt to the changes, but, but the fact that the impacts in some parts of the north will be looked forward to. But beyond that, I, I agree with everyone. I, I'm frankly surprised that this is part of the conversation now, that in the middle of these talks, it's not just about who's going to cut what and, and where all the mitigation is going to come from and how can we pay for it, but where they're actually talking about justice and we're talking about the developing world as people who, of course, have an equal seat at the table. And this is new. This is something that wasn't always the case five years ago or ten years ago, and, and that gives me hope. OK, thank you all for that. Now, before we go... Uh, we wanted just to look ahead, sort of further ahead, really, to some of the radical ideas that are out there on you know, radical proposals for adaptation. So I'd be very interested in your views on them. You're obviously very familiar with these issues, whether you think they're ridiculous or whether you think that you know, this kind of thinking will be necessary in the future. So let's just look at one example of uh, this kind of thinking. It comes from a Dutch company, Delta Sync. And uh, we're going to hear from one of the founders of that company, Rutger de Graaf. And his interview starts with one of the company's corporate videos. My name is Rutger de Graaf. I'm research director and founding partner of DeltaSync. And our mission is to develop the first self-supporting floating city in the world. I think uh, the challenges in this century are such that... um, we will not make it with uh, turning the temperature in our house uh, one degree lower and uh, making cars that are 10% uh, more fuel efficient. All of those things are necessary, but our challenges are much bigger than that. Uh, most of the climate problems are caused by cities, and the cities will double in size within the next 80 years. These cities are predominantly located in uh, coastal areas, so that means that these growing cities, they take up a lot of land, and they e- require even more land uh, for increasing uh, food demand. So we're also facing a huge uh, land scarcity. Our solution is a very flexible and adaptable way of building. And, uh, we're from the Netherlands, and uh, historically we have a, a long history, uh, living with water, fighting against uh, the water. But we were fascinated to explore if there were also other ideas and other opportunities, and uh, not to fight uh, to the water, but more to adapt uh, to the water. Everything you can, can build on the land, you can also build on the water. We've created huge platforms that enables us to, uh, to create floating housing, but also floating uh, food production and floating algae systems, public space infrastructure. Well, in the future, we see. Uh... 
floating developments and floating cities, they will adapt to any future uh, water level. So that's a the big benefit. But they are also very resilient against storms. A recent research that we did uh, together with the Delft University of Technology indicates that it's even possible to create a floating high-rise of 15 floors high uh, under typhoon conditions. So it's really a way of creating a living space that's much less vulnerable. When we started, it was really a Dutch concept, but now we see increasingly uh, attention internationally from cities such as New Orleans, New York, but also cities such as Jakarta and Manila in Asia. So our ambition is to make this technology available globally for all the cities that, that need it. So what we said is, well, you have to start with one floating building as a stepping stone towards a floating city. Well, there you go. Mackenzie Funk, how would you like to live on the 15th floor of a floating tower block? It doesn't sound terribly, terribly attractive. I have to it? say that I, I watched an oddly similar video in Delft, in the Netherlands, from another company pitching the exact same idea in 2008. And uh, it hasn't happened yet. I know they were trying to sell their idea to the Maldives. Uh, their biggest client, and this was pre-crash Dubai, because in, before the crash, Dubai would build anything weird and, and uh, interesting. And beyond that, I don't think they ever built anything. So I, you can count me as not, not as a cynic. I understand that things float, but, but we haven't seen it yet, and it sounds very expensive. I, I remember I, I met with Heather once in Washington, D.C., and afterwards she emailed me to say, have you seen what they're doing in Bangladesh? They're uh, teaching the farmers to have ducks, not chickens. Because ducks float. I think that's a lot more reasonable. <laughs> it's a more realistic proposition. <laughs> it does sound a lot cheaper. <laughs> I mean, this kind of creativity is really, I actually think it's really needed for adaptation. But we have to be careful about too much reliance on technology in terms of adaptation. Creating a single floating house, you know, there are places where that's a very traditional type of housing, but creating an entire city that floats is is um, at a scale that invites other challenges. But it, I'm glad people are thinking about this. But I also think some of the simple solutions are are important as well. And some of the traditional technologies or just common sense things um, of chickens versus ducks. Um, we don't want to forget these as we get excited about floating cities. What, what about living underground? There is talk of uh, that, that, that being a solution in some places, in some contexts. Well, if you think about it, there are certain cities like Toronto and Houston who mm. uh, people do live underground. You find that in the winter in Toronto, everybody goes underground to pass between uh, the uh, shops to avoid all the snow on the major streets. They don't live underground in Toronto, do they? They, they do for most of their daily life. And if you go to Houston during the hottest part of the uh, uh, day, nobody goes on the sidewalk. They're all underground in air-conditioned uh, sort of uh, passageways between all the buildings. So we already do those sort of things. So this sort of innovation is what humans do. But the key thing is, as Heather said, it's about cost. Remember, we're going to have nine and a half billion people by the middle of this century. Now, if you think about it, think about the logistics of building a city floating for, say, 10 million people, and then multiply that up to 60% of nine and a half billion people. Okay, so don't think it's really cost efficient. I mean, there are, there are sort of other other things going on. People talking about putting stuff up in the atmosphere that can reflect sunlight back up. Is these are sort of massive ideas of where we might end up in I don't know a hundred years time. Is there any realistic aspect to them? 
No, I, I can I can speak to this. <laughs> Says a little the bit. professor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no question that if you if you uh, have a volcano go off and, and it shoots sulfur in the air, that it cools the earth. We've seen that before. But the idea that climate change is just temperature, not also weather patterns, mm-hmm. is is lost on this. If a lot of these things, if you run the models and and those who who run the models have seen that. Sure, you could turn the thermostat back down, but you might still lose the monsoon in uh, parts of Africa, in parts of Asia. Yeah, Well, back to the point that there are so many variables that it's just impossible to to, to see how many of these things work out. That that all comes under the sort of title of geoengineering, doesn't it? Well, I see geoengineering uh, as sometimes mad, sometimes bad, and sometimes definitely very dangerous. Again, putting aerosols in the atmosphere, we've done models of this. What happens is that you actually get a different world. Yes, the average temperature of the Earth drops, and so we get a pre-industrial temperature, but what happens is the poles are warmer, the tropics are hotter, and guess what? All the ice on both poles eventually melts, and so we have a completely different world. Okay, going to close this with a final comment from all of you on on this. I haven't got the precise quote in front of me. I'm shuffling all my papers looking for it. But it was a bloke in the White House who who, <laughs> who said, not not the president, an official, who, who said something along the lines of, "There are three ways this can go. We will either prevent global warming, we'll either adapt to live with it, or we will suffer." And it's going to be a combination of those three things is how it's going to work out, depending what policies we pursue now. I mean, that sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it, Professor? I think that this is the choice we have. We can actually move it more towards the first option than the last option. And so we in Paris... Prevent rather than suffer. Absolutely. And again, this is about thinking about the ethics and morals of having 7 billion people on the planet now and what we should do to look after them. Heather McRae? At this point, it's not completely preventable, uh, but it is adaptable, and we need to prevent as much additional warming as we can to make it adaptable for everyone so that no one suffers. Salim al Yes, I agree. I think, by the way, that uh, quote comes from John Holdren, oh, well the, done, the yeah. science, science <laughs> advisor to <laughs> President Obama. Good, good, good. With all respect. He's actually a very, very good scientist. I'm sure he is. Yeah, no, no, and, 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 and indeed, I think, you know, we, we've gone beyond prevention. We, we missed that bus. We are now in the adaptation bus, and we want to not get on the suffering bus. And I think Paris is our last chance to do that. Uh, Mackenzie Funk. Yeah, it's the the fact that if you just let it keep on warming, then you have to keep on adapting and adapting. If this were going the other way, it would be like putting on another sweater and another sweater and another sweater as the room gets colder. You don't want to do that, and you can't do it forever. Well, look, thank you all very much, and John Holdren too. Now then, if you would like to listen back to the programme again, or any other from the archive, you can do that at bbcworldservice.com. Just search for NewsHour Extra on the BBC site. It will take you there. If you uh, like this week's programme, or if you didn't like it, could you please let us know? BBC NH Extra is the Twitter. Uh, you can send an email to Extra, all one word, at gmail.com. You can get the podcast. So that's uh, BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. So from Heather McRae, Salim Hack. Professor Mark Maslin, Mackenzie Funk and myself, Owen Bennett-Jones here in London. Thanks for listening and goodbye.